Puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Carl Wood and Company Here we go, Hireside Chatters, doing the thing from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood, and I'm sure most of us have heard the words that hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times which is an interesting cycle to think about. And in fact, I wonder where in that cycle you might say we are now. Well, George Carlin ranted in his 1999 special about his frustrations with what he saw as the pussification of the American male. And I laughed then, but now we're more than two decades further downstream, and I would love to know what he'd say today because it's getting harder to laugh about. There are more and more people making the case that we have been experiencing a coordinated campaign of social pressure, media manipulation, shaming, and the use of terms like toxic masculinity paired with feminizing food products, preservatives, and chemical exposures to steer the bulk of modern men toward mediocrity, man boobs, laziness, and ultimately weakness in not only body but also spirit and mind. And it's easy to see how an elite class of power-hungry billionaires obsessed with maintaining their place on the mountaintop and furthering the divide between us and them would see the benefits of such a situation, where with each passing year, the people are no more likely to rebel or defend their sovereignty than they are to lift a kettlebell or miss out on a constant stream of Call of Duty installments. Well, wouldn't you know, it is a course correction away from this very trend that is the laser-eyed focus of today's guest, Raw Egg Nationalist, a pseudo-anonymous author, bodybuilder, and Twitter phenom who seeks to inspire men to be their best selves, reject their dependence on a system that doesn't serve them, and resist the globalist's great reset with a return to tradition, localization, and raw eggs. On top of authoring great books like Raw Egg Nationalism in Theory and Practice, as well as The Eggs Benedict Option, he's also the creator and editor of the testosterone-rich Man's World magazine, now out with its 11th issue. Well, let's get the good time started. The Raw Egg Enthusiast, Great Reset Resistor, and Soy Boy Beta Cut Critic, Raw Egg Nationalist, welcome to the higher side. That was quite the introduction, thank you. I hope to live up to it. Uh, I'm sure you will. And thank you for your time. I've been looking forward to this, though I do think there will be a segment of the audience that might have a negative knee-jerk reaction when they see this go up. But having followed your posts for a while and read two of your books now, I think there is more than enough important material to cover here. And I hope they agree by the time we're done. But to kick this off, we got to get that typical cliche question out of the way and have you flesh out this term raw egg nationalist a bit beyond the obvious first layer. What does this term and what is really turning into a movement now actually represent to you? Well, fundamentally, what raw egg nationalism is about is the intersection between health and fitness on the one hand and politics on the other. So beyond the raw egg slonking, it is about why it matters that we are all so horribly unwell, why it is of political importance. And 
increasingly, I think, actually, when people say to me, oh, well, why is health and fitness of political importance? I, I turn the question around and I say, well, why wouldn't it be? Why would you think that it wouldn't be of political moment for the entire population to be obese and have diabetes and be depressed and isolated? Why wouldn't that be a significant political fact? just a fact in itself, you know, and we can talk about the ancient Greeks, we can talk about, you know, how important physical fitness was to the ancient Greeks, how central it was to their conception of being a citizen, you know, being a citizen of Athens, for instance, you know, you were expected to work out in the gymnasia. And in fact, actually, one of the things that was forbidden to slaves, and I think this is very telling, in the ancient Greek uh, polices like Athens was to work out, slaves weren't allowed to use the gymnasia, precisely because working out was a way of cultivating what the Greeks called thymos, which is basically, you could translate it maybe as something like spiritedness or warm-bloodedness. Basically, it's the virtues that make you a man, self-discipline, courage, self-control, strength, all these kinds of things. And so, of course, you would deny those things to a slave. Of course, you wouldn't want a slave to have those things in abundance, or even have the opportunity to develop them. And, you know, looking at us today from the past, the Greeks would almost certainly say, well, you call yourselves citizens, you know, you think you're free, but actually, you're slaves. So I think that actually, what I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to get people to wake up to the fact that actually health and fitness isn't some ephemeral concern. You know, it's not something you should be just doing in your spare time. You know, it's just something you like to do, like sewing or building model airplanes or whatever. It's actually, it's a central part of, should be a central part of our society and, and of the way that we actually think of ourselves and cultivate ourselves as citizens, as political beings. Man is the political being. And as Aristotle said, we need a deeper conception of, of politics and, and we need to do something about the fact that we're all so unhealthy because it's having all sorts of terrible effects that we can talk about a little bit more in, in just a moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those are great points. I definitely see it as all connected and confidence and bravery and these other qualities are not things that the current system would want to highlight. And I've made the joke before in previous episodes that it's become almost punk rock to just go be a boring old farmer because of the way things are these days. And you could kind of say the same thing about exercise and working out and being your supreme best self. It's almost counterculture to where things are. And I've always liked counterculture, though I've definitely lagged behind in the physical fitness component of what makes a person. But to quote your latest book, by strengthening the nation state, we make possible the strengthening of the individual and a nation is only as strong as its people. Raw egg nationalism is a physical and political ethic based upon massive consumption of raw eggs. Just as no single food has been subject to greater colonies in our time than the egg, no men have been more politically persecuted than the nationalists. That is well stated, and we will get into the eggs for sure, but why do you think nationalist, which really just means wanting to come together under a common identity and rally around our collective interests as a nation, is such a dirty word these days? 
Well, I think you can't talk about nationalism without talking about the events of the 20th century, the great wars of the 20th century. And certainly most people would lay the blame, certainly most sort of establishment types would lay the blame for the two world wars and the great sort of bloodshed, bloodletting of the 20th century on nationalism. And, you know, projects like the EU, for instance, and the UN, all these sort of global and trans or supranational projects are all directly predicated on the notion of getting beyond nationalism, you know. And if you study at university, if you study history or whatever, or any kind of social science discipline, soon enough you'll be told that, oh, nationalism is actually just an invention of the 19th century or the 18th century. You know, nationalism is a nationalism is something that is a way of thinking about political communities that is only, you know, is a recent creation. And, and actually what we need to do is we just need to get beyond it because really all it is is harmful and all it does is it encourages people to be bellicose and to hate their neighbours and to take a false sense of pride in themselves and their history and their uniqueness and the purity of, you know, their sort of blood and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of, the word nationalism comes with a huge amount of baggage. But really, when I think of nationalism, of course, I think about nations and nation states, but I also just think about the basic fact that people need communities, people need to belong. You can't really have a, any kind of real stable sense of identity without some form of belonging. And I think that the only real form of belonging that works is national identities. And it certainly serves the interests of the people better than these transnational identities, these sort of globalist identities, which I think are just being used to fundamentally to strip ordinary people of their power and isolate them. And this is something that I talk about at length in, especially in the new book, The Eggs Benedict Option, which is about the globalist plan for, well, for global government, but also how changes to dietary, to sort of people's diets fits into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's not a lot of alternatives on the spectrum between globalism and nationalism. It's like you could scale it down to a household even and think, well, I want everyone in my household to be strong, healthy, vital, robust. It doesn't have anything to do with how I feel about my neighbors. In fact, it's also a good thing if my neighbors take care of their house and it's strong and vital so that we have less problems in the local neighborhood. And then you can scale that out to a bigger and bigger area. And you would hope that stability amongst everybody is better than uh, chaos. And on an individual level, you're more secure if your closest people next door are also secure. So I don't know. I don't see it as a, a dirty word, but I could understand how it's been propagandized because the movement is all globalist all the time. And we talk a lot about decentralizing things. Well, if you want to decentralize things, you're kind of talking about little pockets of people that try to live their best selves. So it doesn't seem too controversial to me. No, I don't think it should be, but it very definitely is. I mean, you only need to look at the four years of the Trump presidency to see that actually nationalism can be a force for good. I mean, all of the dire predictions that were made about Donald Trump, you know, that he was going to lead the world into some sort of nuclear war, that everything was just going to fall apart. None of it happened. It's happening now. It's happening now under a globalist president, but it didn't happen under an America first president. 
And that's why they're so afraid of a second Trump term, because, you know, nationalism represents a mortal threat, I think, to the globalist plan for the world. So, yes, I think if you really start to think and if you're actually capable of a little bit of independent thought, then I think you can arrive at the conclusion that actually nationalism isn't necessarily all of the things that people think it is. I mean, obviously, it can have its bad aspects and it can be put to bad uses and it can be, in many respects, it can be quite stupid. I mean, nationalism works in some contexts much better than others. Nationalism works in Great Britain or in England, for instance, because England has been a stable political you know, the nation of England has actually existed for over a thousand years, and the people of England, you know, share a common descent, largely homogenous, shared culture, language, etc. Nationalism works, it just does. I mean, there may have been demographic changes in recent decades, but for the vast majority of its history, then England has been composed of, you know, a mixture of, of Anglo Saxon, Jutes, Danes, and Norwegians, and the Celtic inhabitants of the British Isles before they invaded. And that was it. That was it for a thousand years, 900 years. So in a policy like that, then yes, nationalism works well. But nationalism in the Middle East, for instance, works less well because the dividing lines are arbitrary. You know, if you look at Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, all of these countries, then, you know, they were they were carved up by British and French diplomats in the middle of the 20th century along actual physical boundary lines like the Euphrates River and rather than ethnic boundaries. So that's part of the reason why there is so much chaos in the Middle East is because actually the nations have been drawn up improperly. But fundamentally, nationalism can work. And yes, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's pretty thoroughly unpacked. Now, let's quote you regarding eggs. You write that Eggs are important to raw egg nationalism, both as a symbol and as a food of immense nutritional value. The symbolic, indeed esoteric aspect, I won't go into much here, suffice to say that since time immemorial, the egg is represented variously, the created world, the cycle of birth, death and rebirth, the sun, the sexual act, and much more besides that. And then you say, the dichotomy raw cooked is also of important symbolic meaning too, capturing the eternal interface between nature and culture, between the powers beyond us and the powers within us as humans. A symbol of the generative power of nature, the raw egg, when consumed, symbolically returns us to a nature from which the modern world alienates us. But perhaps I have already said too much, for these are secrets that are revealed to the initiate only with time. <laughs> Again, well stated, <laughs> but let me have you elaborate on the egg as both a symbol of resistance to something like the World Economic Forum's Great Reset and also the cornerstone of an ideal diet. Yeah, of course. Well, there's probably no food in the modern world that has actually been slandered quite as much as eggs. Eggs are the only food in American history, certainly, to have a specific health warning attached to them. In the late 1960s, in the presidency of Linda B. Johnson, then there was terrible inflation. It was actually quite similar to today. Terrible inflation, prices going up, and the agricultural secretary, Orville Freeman, went to Lyndon B. Johnson and said to him, look, people are really annoyed about the price of eggs. Everyone loves eggs for breakfast, and eggs are really expensive now, and they're all grumbling. And Lyndon B. Johnson 
instead of trying to do something sort of substantive to reduce the price of eggs, went to his health secretary and told him to issue a warning about the specific cholesterol content in eggs to try to dissuade people from buying them, right? It's a very, very cynical thing to do. But it had massive consequences. And so eggs were singled out because of their cholesterol content. The thinking being that, you know, the more the more cholesterol you consume in your diet, the more cholesterol will be in your blood, the less healthy you'll be, the more chance you'll have of having a heart attack or a stroke. That's basically what's called the lipid heart hypothesis. Well, that was the 60s, and that sort of had terrible effects over the last 70 years. But as actually, by 2015, then that was actually reversed. And so now, for instance, the American government doesn't actually issue any cholesterol guidelines at all now for individual consumption. So that thinking about cholesterol and its relation to health has been overturned rightly, but it hasn't really filtered down to ordinary people. And, and your doctor will still, in all likelihood, say to you, you should be eating less cholesterol. If you, know, if you went to your doctor and said, I eat 12 eggs a day, he or she would say, you know, you really shouldn't be doing that. You probably shouldn't even be eating one a day. <laughs> so eggs have been vilified because of their cholesterol content and because of this sort of historical this oddity with Lyndon B. Johnson and inflation. But eggs really represent, I think, and, and this is something that I say at length in the Eggs Benedict option, eggs represent a particular kind of food that is very much in the crosshairs of the globalists, if you will. So eggs are cheap, highly nutritious, can be produced locally. You can produce eggs in your own garden if you've got some space. And in fact, if you've been on 4chan, you may well have seen the indoor chicken farmer meme where, you know, there's somebody <laughs> keeping chickens in his living room in a, I think it's in a tent. Anyway, you know, you, anybody can produce eggs and they're incredibly high quality nutrition. And that's precisely the opposite of the kind of food that is being put forward as the future of food. And so you know, when the globalists talk about a plant-based diet, a global plant-based diet, like, for instance, the planetary health diet, which I talk about in the Eggs Benedict option, then what they're really talking about is they're talking about corporate foods. So they're foods that can be owned by corporations. I say this often, you can't patent an egg, but you can patent a plant-based egg. And that's what they want you to eat. They want you to eat a plant-based egg, not an egg. Because, you know, a corporation can own every single, the process by which you make a plant-based egg is proprietary. You can't patent a chicken laying an egg, unless maybe you genetically modify the chicken, in which case you probably could, because you can own genetically modified organisms. But fundamentally, it's about control of the food supply. And the egg represents freedom from corporate control of the food supply. That's one of the main enemies that I'm constantly sort of leveling my guns against is corporate control of the food supply. I talk about the history of corporate control of the food supply, why it's been such a disaster, and also why the globalists want to extend corporate control so that it's basically total control of the food supply. You know, they want total control of the food supply. They don't want there to be independent farmers. They don't want there to be independent food producers. They want us all to be reliant on massive corporate producers of food because it gives them profits, it gives them money, of course, but it also gives them control over people, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. 
as far as I'm concerned, I would say patenting and owning nature has been a key aspect of the entire GMO venture. Maybe it's main motivation, the whole Monsanto thing, glyphosate, making crops glyphosate resistant. We have known this for a decade, but what we're experiencing now is like a level jump in that same mindset, psychopathic mindset, really, of just must control all the things. And I think it's just hitting a little differently. It's hitting through marketing and subtle influence. And people just maybe aren't seeing it as obviously as they might have seen it previously. And I do think it's a very important aspect of the game that's being played now, and it needs to be called out for sure. Yeah. Well, and that's precisely what the Eggs Benedict Option is about. The Eggs Benedict Option is about the globalist plan for the future of food. And I mean, the book starts with a short preface about Plato's Republic. And Plato's Republic is a very, very interesting book. I mean, it's a fascinating book, but there's a food is a little discussed aspect of Plato's Republic. People tend to focus on other stuff. There's only a very short discussion of food in Plato's Republic, but it's extremely telling. So it starts at the beginning of book two, Plato's Socrates and his companions are talking about the origins of society, how societies are formed, how individuals come together, and so forth. And Plato Socrates ends up hypothesizing that a totally harmonious society would be one in which the workers, the ordinary people, were only allowed to eat a vegetarian diet, basically. And so he says, you know, if you had a a simple society and you gave them all myrtle berries and figs and acorns and maybe a bit of cheese and some olive oil, then they would be totally fine. You know, they would be happy doing their menial jobs, working in the fields, you know, making shoes and clothes and all that kind of stuff. And you wouldn't have any kind of social, there'd be no strife, there'd be no social discontent. But if you had a simple society and you let the people eat meat, what would then happen is that people, I think he actually says, their tempers would be inflamed and they would want more and more. So even 2,500 or 2,300 years ago, you have this very, very striking notion presented by one of the very first social planners. He wasn't a globalist, but you know he is a social planner in the mold of today's globalist social planners to a recognizable extent. So you have Plato saying, look, you can control, you can alter the constitution of a society simply by altering what the people eat. Give people a vegetarian diet, they'll be contented with their dirt and humble lives. But if you give people meat, then they're going to be discontented and you'll need all sorts of other institutions. You'll need more land, you'll need more complex laws, you'll need police and an army, etc. So this is almost like the sort of, it's like the hidden history of food as a means of social control. So I preface the book with that and I say, look, actually food and social control go together like peas and carrots, you know, like this isn't, these two things aren't alien to one another. In fact, they're inseparable. And I talk about the agricultural revolution in the Near East. So that was the transition to farming about sort of circa 10,000, 10 to 12,000 years ago is when it began and how central food was to that food, you know, that the cultivation of grains and the domestication of animals was central to the emergence of the first states in the Near East. And although it's presented 
because we are the heirs of the agricultural revolution, then the stories that we tell about ourselves tend to be, you know, stories that make us feel good. But actually, the truth is that the agricultural revolution looks like it was, in very many ways, a negative thing for the vast majority of people who were involved in it. What it actually looks like is the elite imposition of settled agricultural life on a mass of people so that a small elite could continue to live as they had lived before the advent of agriculture. So there's a very interesting social dynamic. And again, food is central to this total transformation of life. And I call the agricultural revolution the first great reset. And I'm using it as a parallel with basically what the globalists want to do today, how they want to totally change global society. And that transformation is built on a change to the way that we produce and consume food. Yes, I thought that was one of my favorite parts of the book, talking about the original Great Reset and saying we got to go back to 2030 BC to see the same kind of thinking that is going to usher us into 203080. Everybody knows the Agenda 2030 phrase. But I found this fascinating because our move from hunter-gatherers to stationary agricultural crop growers is touted as one of the greatest leaps in the evolution of man. In more esoteric conversations about ascended masters, they'll say various gods taught man the principles of sacred geometry, divine proportion, astrology, the sciences, and agriculture. And then some others frame these gods as beings that wanted man to go down a dark path. So there is kind of that two sides of looking at it. But regardless of all that, you have lines like, instead of there being overwhelming evidence for a strong social will to sedatism in simple terms, a clear desire among hunter-gatherers to leave behind the difficulties and dangers of their lifestyle for the obvious benefits of the new agriculture Again and again, we see that the first farmers were forced to settle and were held in place, forced and then held. By whom? Broad environmental conditions and a predatory elite. And then you go on to say, the more we get to know what being an ancient hunter-gatherer was really like, the more we understand why early man might have resisted a change to this way of life. The hunter-gatherer's life was one of abundant wild harvesting of animal and plant life. I love thinking about this kind of stuff in a new way because we've talked about Native Americans before. They were painted as savages by the colonialists because they didn't live the same way. But yet there are books written about extreme abundance. The rivers were so full of fish, horses could almost walk across them. And then you start realizing that there actually is an intelligence to what the Native Americans did. It just wasn't recognized because it was so foreign. They were engineering the landscape and cultivating abundance. And yes, yeah, still moving around, not staying stationary, but it isn't necessarily the right framing to call it necessarily primitive. It's just different. And I think you're kind of getting at that here. It's really interesting to think well, maybe the hunter-gatherers were actually happy and they weren't destitute and starving and just hoping that today we get a bison because otherwise it's 10 more days of starvation. That's the picture that's painted in our head. But it seems like it might have been much different. Yes, that very definitely is the picture that's presented of pre-agricultural so-called primitive life. One of the books that I draw on heavily 
or that I drew on heavily in writing the Eggs Benedict Option is a book called Against the Grain by James C. Scott, who's an anthropologist, political scientist of a slightly anarchistic bent, I would say. I mean, he's definitely not right wing, but that book is precisely about the agricultural revolution as a social disaster, basically. And I draw very heavily on his account. It's a really, it's a great book. It's a very thought provoking book. And He's interested in the emergence of the state and also how people evaded control by the state. So he talks about a golden age of barbarians, basically from the emergence of the first states until about the sort of 1600s, maybe 1700s. So he calls this a great expanse of time, a golden age of barbarians, where it was possible to live outside states and be healthier and happier than if you lived within them. So we think about the kind of eternal antagonism between settled peoples and nomads. And that's been that's one of the great sort of one of the great sort of drivers of history. For instance, you know, think of the Mongols and nomadic groups before them and their interactions with settled civilizations with China and then the civilizations of the Near East and Europe, etc. But there was a long period of time where it was quite possible if you were a settled cultivator, say in China or elsewhere, to run away from the drudgery of being a peasant and actually live a different kind of life. And the last vestiges of that really were on the American frontier in the 19th century when you could become something like a mountain man and you could go off into the mountains and trap and, and hunt and basically live in the manner of a Native American throw off the shackles of civilization and go native, go wild, whatever you want to call it. But that sort of thing now is totally impossible. There's nowhere that you can go to live in the world where you're sort of not subject to state power. And so that's sort of what he talks about in the book. And it's kind of a lament about that fact as well. But it's definitely, it's not the story that you would be told it's not the triumphal story of the agricultural revolution that we like to tell ourselves or that you would be told generally. And yeah, it was very provocative, made me think, and it plays a big part in the, in the narrative of the Eggs Benedict option of the first half of the book. But I do want to say that I don't think that agriculture is just an unmitigated disaster. I think that agriculture has many benefits as well as deficits. And I mean, my solution to the globalist plan for the future of food is one that involves agriculture, just a different kind of agriculture to the one that we're used to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so before we get too far downfield, I wanted to talk about the raw eggs component to your message. Mm. And my understanding is this is largely derived from bodybuilder Vince Giranda, who you refer yep. to as the Nikola Tesla of bodybuilding and who was largely <laughs> known as the iron guru. He had yep. a ton of innovations in the field of bodybuilding. And because of that, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his early days sought out Garanda's mentorship and was dismissed as a fat fuck, which I just found funny. <laughs> but he, as well as many others that we see as peak fitness achievers have kind of followed Vince Garanda's model and a staple of his diet was 36 raw eggs a day. Talk to us about what this actually does for the body. And is that advice for everyone or should non-bodybuilders maybe still do it, but scale it down a bit? It depends on what you want to do. 
so i mean yes if you want to pack on a lot of mass then yeah try the 36 eggs a day diet vince Gironda didn't advocate consuming 36 raw eggs a day all the time right. he advocated doing that as a cycle like taking a cycle of steroids so over a period of eight weeks, you would build up to consuming 36 raw eggs a day, and then you would consume them for a couple of weeks, and then you would slowly work back down to a more manageable number. I mean, I think he consumed eggs all the time, but he certainly didn't consume 36 a day all the time for his entire life. That was one of his specific egg-based diets. He had other ones as well. There was a diet called the steak and eggs diet, for instance, that he did when he was cutting weight. So you just eat three portions of steak and as many eggs as you want a day, and the weight falls off you. And I mean, actually, Vince Gironda, in his day in the 50s, in the early 60s, he was so ripped, he was actually penalized because the judges in bodybuilding competitions preferred a slightly rounder, sort of puffier, less defined physique. And so he was too ripped because he, because he was doing this steak and eggs diet that just made the fat melt off him. It's basically a ketogenic diet of sorts. But no, he was a real maverick, and he was intensely against the use of anabolic steroids, which were just really starting to come into their own in the 50s and certainly the 60s. He advocated raw egg consumption as an alternative to the use of anabolic steroids, and he was very, very up on science. He read a lot of scientific papers. He knew about nutrition. It wasn't just a sort of instinctual thing. And what he understood was that cholesterol and as I said earlier, eggs contain a huge amount of cholesterol. Cholesterol is an anabolic substance. And he had read about the way that burns victims used to be treated. So yes. once upon a time, burns victims would be treated with a diet of up to 36 eggs a day in different forms. They'd be given them raw, they might have scrambled eggs, they might have eggs sort of beaten up in alcohol and they would be given huge quantities of eggs. And that was to counter muscle wastage because when you get, if you know anything about burns, burns cause muscle wastage. They cause serious, serious muscle wastage. So burns victims were given up to 36 eggs a day. And Gironda hypothesized that that worked because of the cholesterol, not just because of the protein. So yes, eggs do contain fantastic amount of protein. Eggs are a complete protein source. And in fact, on protein quality scales, these sort of scientific protein quality scales, eggs and milk protein are the highest on protein quality scales. They are the best natural sources of protein you can get. But it's the cholesterol that Vince Gironda was interested in. And interestingly enough, at a certain point, I think maybe like in the 1940s or 1950s, Burns victims stopped being given eggs and they just started being given steroids instead. And so I think Gironda drew a series of sort of inferences from this and really genuinely believed that eggs were a natural steroid because of the cholesterol that they contained. Now, fast forward to the you know last couple of decades, and actually that has been substantiated by scientists, by scientific studies. So there's a chap called Steve Reichman, for instance, who's done studies of egg consumption and muscle growth and he showed and and of just of cholesterol consumption and muscle growth and he showed that there is a closer correlation between cholesterol consumption and lean muscle growth than protein consumption and lean muscle growth so there's like a dose response relationship between cholesterol consumption and muscle growth and why would that be the case well 
cholesterol is a precursor of the anabolic hormones, including testosterone in the body. Your body produces cholesterol that then gets turned into testosterone, but actually it seems that the more cholesterol you consume in your diet, the better, because it's a costly process to produce cholesterol in the liver. Your body prefers to get it through the diet. And then there are also some other potential reasons why cholesterol might be anabolic in that way. But so there's hard science substantiating what Vince Gironda kind of intuited and understood from a basic understanding of physiology and of sort of molecular chemistry and all that kind of stuff. So he was way ahead of his time. He was a real maverick. And unfortunately, when bodybuilding really entered its steroid era, then his ideas, which went totally against the grain by that point, fell by the wayside. I mean, he was still a famous trainer. He still had his gym in West Hollywood into the early 1990s, I think. But he wasn't really sort of central to bodybuilding in the way that he had been in the 50s and early 60s. You know, everybody went to him in the early 1960s. All the future champions, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Frank Zane, Lou Ferrigno, the Hollywood studios sent all of their leading men and leading women to Vince Gironda to get them in shape, Clint Eastwood. He trained Carl Weathers, who played Apollo Creed in Rocky. So yeah, so he's kind of been forgotten, but people are rediscovering him now. People who are like me, who are interested in the potential for natural bodybuilding rather than bodybuilding that needs steroids, the kind of bodybuilding that is dominant now. So he's enjoying a real revival. <laughs> yeah, I actually know a couple of guys who are the ones who really introduced me to your work, guys I've known since grade school who, as an act of rebellion, decided to kind of go down this road a little bit, got some chickens and started each day with a nice tall glass of raw eggs. And they did it for a while and felt great. Their situation changed where they couldn't keep the chickens. But for a while, it was like, hey, look, this is free. It keeps me from eating throughout the day. It's the most natural food I can get. And I actually feel better. It seemed like across the board, it would check a lot of boxes that need to be checked in people's lives these days. I mean, I should say about why raw in particular. So the thing about raw eggs, firstly, is that you can consume them in very large quantity when they're raw. And that's something, you know, if you've seen Paul Newman in Cool Hand Luke, you'll know that if you want to consume 50 boiled eggs, you're going to have a very, very hard time doing it but you can actually consume 50 raw eggs very, very easily. You know, it doesn't take much to do that at all. And that's, again, that's to do with the cholesterol because you want as much cholesterol as possible. So, you, you know, you want to consume as many eggs as possible. Then you've also got to factor in that heating degrades the cholesterol. It also degrades all sorts of micronutrients and enzymes and essential substances that are in the egg. So, when you're taking them raw, you're getting the purest nutrition possible. People often say, well, when you consume eggs raw, you get less of the protein because there's a substance in egg white called avidin that binds to certain substances in the yolk and, and all that kind of stuff and prevents you from getting them. But there's actually very little evidence that that stuff applies to humans. It seems to be the case in rats and in other animals, but the digestive system of rats is very different from the digestive system of humans human digestive system is a much lower pH, it's much more likely that actually the digestive system is able to break down avidin when it's bonded with biotin, which is the, the chemical that it bonds to. So 
yeah, the only real hurdle I think with raw eggs for most people is that they think it's disgusting or they're going to get salmonella or both. And there are various ways that you can prepare raw eggs that makes them really, really actually quite palatable that I talk about. For instance, the Gironda shake, I call it the OG shake. And that was Vince's go-to shake. That's a mixture of half and half. So it's heavy cream, raw milk in equal proportion, say six eggs, maybe a little bit of maple syrup, blend it up with a fork, and then you've, you've basically got custard. And so, you know, who can object to custard? I call it anabolic custard. It's delicious. The salmonella thing is massively, massively overhyped. Part of the problem is that supermarket eggs, really cheap quality supermarket eggs in the US and in some other countries as well, are scrubbed within an inch of their lives before they're sold. And what that does is that damages the outer membrane of the egg. There's a protective membrane around the egg that prevents substances from getting inside. You scrub an egg and it destroys that membrane and then bacteria can get inside basically. So it's actually illegal in France to sell eggs that have been scrubbed for human consumption. You're not allowed to do it because they know that it lets bacteria get in, but you're allowed to do that in the US. Yeah, it is interesting. I've bought eggs from a farmer directly who said, don't even put these in the fridge, just put them in the pantry because they still have the bloom on them, which is that protective coating that you're referencing. And related to the health of the individual and the state of things today, I see you posting a lot about plastics and those PFAS chemicals, which are a huge problem, but it's almost impossible to really remove all plastic from our lives. Again, just growing our own food, storing it in glass, these things would go a long way. But I would like to have you talk to us about how bad plastics are, particularly in the West and in America. Oh, yeah. Plastics are a terrible problem. And yes, as you say, there isn't actually anything that you can do totally to avoid exposure to plastics and in particular microplastics. This is what people are really waking up to is the problem of microplastics in particular. So that's tiny, tiny little pieces of plastic that are either made to be that small or that are produced through weathering, you know, plastic waste in the environment, in the sea, it breaks down under the action of the waves and the sunlight. Then you get tiny little pieces of plastic in the water. The plastic problem is terrible. I mean, we've already put hundreds of millions of tons of plastic into the oceans and the environment, the rivers, etc. Plastic is ubiquitous now. Microplastics have been found in Arctic and Antarctic snow. They circulate on the air. You know, you find them at the bottom of the ocean. You'll find them on the top of the highest mountains. I read a study the other day that said that 3,000 tons of plastic falls in snow over Switzerland every year now. Uh, Mm. So plastics are everywhere. And we're just starting, we're really just starting to understand all the negative health effects they can have. So plastics, say if you're a microorganism, if you're a small organism, a small fish or something, then you get lots of bits of plastic in your stomach and it blocks your stomach. So plastics have physical effects, the actual plastic molecules themselves, and they probably have physical effects in humans as well you know we they say that we inhale a credit card's worth of plastic a week and we also probably consume a credit card's plastic a week as well in food and drink so plastic is getting into our bodies and 
studies are showing that it basically goes everywhere in the body. So plastics can cross the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain. They're found in the lungs. They're found in the kidneys, all the organs, and the blood. And so we're desperately trying to find out exactly what they're doing to us. And it looks like it's not good. As well as the physical effects of the plastics themselves, they're also vectors for harmful chemicals, for things like PFAS, for BPA, phthalates. These are endocrine disrupting chemicals, and that means that they disrupt the body's natural hormone balance. They're generally estrogenic, so they mimic the effects of the female hormone estrogen, which is bad for men and it's bad for women too. But they also have other effects too. These chemicals are obesogenic, which means that they make you put on weight. And they can do that by various different means. An obesogenic chemical, like a PFAS, for instance, might reduce your body's metabolic rate so that your body burns fewer calories. And that means that you can actually end up putting on weight, even if you're not eating more food, because your body's caloric demands are reduced. You're still consuming the same amount of calories, but that actually puts you in a caloric surplus, which means you start to put on fat. So, I mean, plastics are ubiquitous, especially these microplastics. They're in our homes, they're in the air, they're in the water, they're in the food. But what we can do is we can, as well as lobbying for governments and corporations to clean up the environment and to try to remove plastic from the environment, what you can also do is you can mitigate your exposure to plastics to quite a significant degree. You won't, as I say, you won't be able to get away from them totally, but what you can do is significantly reduce the amount that you're inhaling and consuming and therefore you know lessen the the harmful effects on your body so get rid of as much plastic as possible from your life you know don't cook food in the microwave in plastic don't use plastic bottles try not to wear synthetic fibers nylon or these kinds of things pvc if you're into that kind of thing and eat organic food avoid processed food in particular any kind of food that comes in plastic, but especially processed food, just because it's likely to be contaminated with plastics during the manufacturing stage. Filter your water, as Alex Jones would say, get an Alexa Pure Pro, something like that. And you will be able to reduce your exposure to these nasty substances and to plastics significantly. Yeah, yeah. It's a rabbit hole that can really drive you crazy if you try to bat 100% on this because it's just really hard to do. I even go to a local rancher and get grass-fed, grass-finished, pasture-raised meat, but how does it come? Vacuum-sealed in plastic. So Yeah, of course. It's it's a tough thing to get away from, but you use the phrase what they're doing to us. And on that subject, there's another big thing I wanted to make sure we fit into this first hour that I'm hearing about and you've written about, and that is alpha gal syndrome, which is a very ironic name, yeah. alpha gale, given your whole general message and branding. Uh -huh. But alpha gale syndrome is when people have anaphylactic allergic reaction to the alpha gale molecule, which is found in red meat and dairy. Now, they also say that it's in uh, some medications and vaccines that have small amounts of alpha-gal containing additives, stabilizers, and coatings. That's something I pulled off the CDC's website. But they're telling us that this is from a tick bite, that you get bit by this tick, and now all of a sudden you're allergic to red meat. And I just find it very suspicious that the people that are 
kind of uh, promoting this meatless world are, you know, at the same time, we have this tick problem. It just seems odd. I mean, they're pushing plant-based meat substitutes. And then there's this overlap with Big Pharma actually using this molecule in its products. It says it right there. As well as, which I got from your book, real conversations about genetically altering people to make them allergic to meat. So I'm curious what you think. Is this really a tick situation or is this too convenient? I mean, the conversations have been had. Is there some genetic engineering going on here to further their goal if willpower and propaganda isn't enough? Yeah, I mean, I'm no conspiracy theorist, but one thing also that you didn't mention is the fact that there is a long history, decades long, maybe 70 year long history of weaponizing ticks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there is very good reason to believe there's a book called Bitten. There's a very good reason to believe that actually Lyme disease is a biological weapon that was created and that escaped from the lab. Plum Island, I can't remember. Yes, it is. And Connecticut, and because the first recorded case of Lyme disease was in Lyme, Connecticut, which is very, very near Plum Island, where they were doing research into the weaponization of ticks as a vector for biological weapons. So there's so much to unpack about all of this stuff. And yes, as you say, and as I say in my book, then people like S. Matthew Lau, who is supposedly a bioethicist, who is directly affiliated with the World Economic Forum, although they've scrubbed everything about him from their website, he suggested that one way that we could combat climate change is to make people, actually make people through the use of dermal patches or injections or even genetic engineering, we could make people actually physically allergic to red meat. So they just couldn't eat it. So even if you wanted to, you couldn't eat it. And I mean, I know that if you have alpha-gal syndrome, it is horrible if you eat red meat. I mean, it's like you can't force yourself to eat red meat. It's impossible. I mean, it's mighty convenient. I mean, I saw an article that suggested that as many as 10 million Americans may have alpha-gal syndrome now. I mean, ticks are an enormous problem, and Lyme disease is becoming an enormous problem, and also apparently this alpha-gal syndrome too. I mean, it's certainly... I will say it's mighty convenient given that there is now this plant-based agenda that we're told is essential for the survival of the human race and of the planet. It's funny that millions of people are now suddenly becoming illegal, uh, illegal, um, <laughs> allergic to meat. Yeah, it is mighty convenient. Yeah, today allergic, tomorrow illegal. So to zoom back out to the big picture, as an alternative to a global one world government agenda advocating for building a strong national identity seems like a natural train of thought. But a lot of researchers, historians, and social commentators, at least in the U.S., think that we're closer to a breakup of the United States or some sort of divorce than we are a strong common identity. And to go further with this, personally, I appreciate the humor and satire, which comes out most in your Men's World magazine, but it's also a feature of people of your political persuasion, let's say. But when you troll and mock the left so aggressively and use terms like soy boy beta cucks, isn't that doing more to divide? I mean, doesn't that push us further apart and make us easier to compromise from something like the World Economic Forum? 
Yeah. I mean, I think that I don't think that any society has ever been sort of totally unified. There's always been, I mean, you look at the early history of the US, then, you know, there was a lot of disagreement in the revolutionary days too. Mm -hmm. I think that disagreement is healthy. I think that it's good for people to live different lives and to have different opinions. I think it's, it can obviously be a source of strength. And at various times in Western history, it has been. At the moment, I don't think it is. And I think that obviously we're experiencing a level of polarization that doesn't bode well for the future of the nation. And I do think that America is in a very, very bad place. I mean, I, I don't think that national divorce is a good idea. I think it's a bad idea. I think that for various different reasons, not least of all the fact that it will benefit all of America's enemies, it will benefit China and other nations, and it will weaken America, obviously. I do sort of believe in manifest destiny. I do think that America needs to be, you know, one nation from sea to shining sea rather than a host of smaller nations that actually have virtually no power and no influence on the world stage. So I, I'm definitely not for national divorce. However intractable the problems seem, I think that people on the right in the US must continue to fight for the US as a whole rather than just, you know, a rump of red states in the South and Midwest. I think that that's stupid. But yeah, I mean, the trolling thing, I think is, I, I mean, I can see the point about that. I can see the point about that. And it's at times, yes, maybe it is a little bit juvenile. But I think that at present, then, Without it, I think that we would probably feel a little bit impotent. And hmm. I think that there does have to be some kind of organized pushback. And I think that there is a difference between the kind of trolling that probably takes place every day and is just, you know, sort of uh, name calling maybe. And then there is the kind of trolling that actually, or not even trolling, but the kind of anonymous posting and the kind of spread of particular memes that actually works very effectively and actually serves a political purpose. I mean, you absolutely can't dismiss the role of memes in the rise of Donald Trump. I mean, the 2016 election was absolutely memes and social media were absolutely key to Donald Trump's election and to getting the word out and to spreading the hype and to helping to discredit his opponent, Hillary Clinton. And that's part of the reason why the regime is clamping down on anonymity online and social media and People like Ricky Vaughan, who is Douglas Mackey, you know, who's been convicted of election interference for the memes that he made in the 2016 election. I mean, it's a crazy, crazy story. I don't know whether the whole of America will ever be won back, as it were. I think that there will always be, you know, places like New York, which are very, very different from Texas. Mm -hmm. But that has probably always been the way. But I think that the polarization obviously has become much worse. But then you've got candidates like RFK Jr. who is talking about how he can speak to the entire nation. Mm -hmm. And yet he is at the same time campaigning on a platform that actually is not dissimilar in many ways from Trump's and certainly takes in a lot of the same issues. So mm -hmm. it may very well be a question of style. I mean, but yes, I do think that we need to fight for the whole of America rather than just individual parts of it. Yeah, it, it is a matter of style. Obviously, I, I hear all the time things like, well, the left can't meme. And that's, you know, a troll in itself. And 
Some of that stuff is quite funny. Some of it is just juvenile and annoying when you're talking about comedy or jokes. I mean, it's such a broad word. There's things that are going to fall all along that spectrum, but they have the term you get more flies with honey. And I just think about as an approach, is it the best one to go with? Because like comedy and satire and mockery, I fully agree, is not violence. So those people really need to chill out. And things like fat shaming, I mean, they kind of have a place. I just had a friend I hadn't seen in a decade come to visit me for the weekend, and he's been overweight for a long time. But he told me before he showed up that he was down 20 pounds. And the first thing I said to him is, that is down 20 pounds? And he said in response, yeah, well, it's nice to see that you have tits of your own now. And that is just an example of how guys are. And honestly, yeah. nothing has motivated me more to say, yeah, you know, I do have to do those 50 push-ups a day because I've been lazy, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to have a good rapport with someone to say those sorts of things and get that right reaction. And I just wonder if there might be some strategic benefit to taking a different tone with those who are really just captured by a sophisticated social engineering operation. Is there a place for empathy or a tone other than man up or fuck you in the interest of the greater goals here? I mean, it's no individual person's responsibility or job to convince the left that there's this other way of being. But, you know, there might be some nuance there that I would like to see this new right maybe think about. I mean, look, I empathize quite deeply with people who have been so misled and who are unhealthy and unhappy and, and fat and stuck in a lifestyle that is incredibly damaging and, you know, where they're not actually able to fulfill their inborn needs and develop their capacities to anywhere near the extent that they should. I feel sorry for people like that and I do empathize with them and I do think that a lot of people actually are probably reachable with the right kind of strategy. And yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's a winning strategy to alienate everybody. I think there are some people who obviously are more or less lost and I think that it's a waste of time trying to appeal to them and I just don't think that there's any point in it. But yes, I mean, I think that, I mean, the message of health and fitness, for instance, I mean, I, I know that we, we use a lot of, you know, sort of like gym bro type memes and all of that kind of stuff, but it is a message for everybody who actually wants to listen. And I get accused of being a masculinist health guru and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I write stuff for women too. I've written articles for women. I'm interested in women's health. I don't want women to be unhealthy. I don't want women to be unhappy. I don't want women to be infertile. You know, so I've written stuff about women's health. I wrote a piece for the Idaho Tribune about why the end of men is the end of women and why men and women need each other. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I mean, I think that fundamentally then, yes, we do have to make a play for as many people as we possibly can. I don't think that we're going to win any kind of political power just by appealing to people with, you know, 400 pound bench presses. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a fair response. I just figured I would throw it out there. It was something I was considering when thinking about the archetype that has kind of emerged since those Trump years that you mentioned. And there is like a Joker energy to it. Like, just let the world burn. There's a chaotic energy to it. 
Um, but of course, you can't really define something that is kind of grassroots and being carried out by tens of thousands of people. You can't categorize it so uh, limitedly. But it was just a thought. But anyway, yeah, man. I mean, this has just been really interesting, uh, as thought provoking as I expected. Anyone who has their focus on rejecting the policies of the World Economic Forum agenda and forging a better path is someone I consider worth highlighting and talking to. So thanks for giving us your take. Before I let you go, remind people about the work you have out there and how they can best follow you into the future. Okay, so my latest book is The Eggs Benedict Option. That's available from Amazon in paperback. Uh, and other third-party retailers, Barnes & Noble, people like that. I've got a cookbook, which is available in paperback from Amazon, Roig Nationalism in Theory and Practice. You can also get it in hardback from antelopehillpublishing.com. That's like a glossy coffee table cookbook. I've got other books as well that are out on Amazon. The best place to go is, well, there's rawregnationalist.com. That's my personal website, mansworldmag.com. Dot online. That's the website for Man's World, my magazine. We've got a new line of merchandise as well available on the website, in the store, some really funny, really cool t-shirts that you'll be able to mog people in. Um, and follow my Twitter, which is babygravy9, unfortunate handle. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you'll be able to find out everything you need to know there. I do a lot of posting about health and fitness and all sorts of other stuff as well. But yes, I mean, the majority of my work that you can buy is available on Amazon. I write for American Mind, American Greatness, The Epoch Times, Valiant News regularly, but I post all of my articles on Twitter and you'll be able to find any of the links you need there. Mm -hmm. And your Twitter feed is a great one. I mean, you are very methodical with laying out the studies for the points that you're making and for a person who is looking for motivation in their personal life just to come across randomly in your feed, those studies, they might help you in the moment where you are drinking out of a plastic water bottle and you're like, man, mm -hmm. I, I really need to change my ways because we get set in these habits. But overall, with your message, I just think, yeah, everyone benefits from strong men in society except the leaders who want us weak, dumb, and dependent. So thanks again and keep fighting the good fight. You too, my friend. Thank you. And boom goes the dynamite. Raw Egg Nationalist takes the square. <laughs> this is one of those episodes that I expect to split the room. There's a contingency of this audience who does lean towards the new right. Let's not say alt-right because of how loaded and weaponized that term is, but new right, non-establishment right. The meme lords, the slash poll kind of guys... Well, I expect them to be full red rocket over this, no doubt. And then the softer left-leaning types will probably have some degree of triggeredness if they're really wrapped up in the their team versus the other team sort of perspective. But I think the majority would be like me, and I hear most often that we need to start talking to each other, and we need to focus more on our common ground rather than what divides us. I consider myself outside of the left-right paradigm, and so I feel fine talking to people from either side if they have something to say that I align with. And when you dig past the politics and the right-side rapper, what is raw-egg nationalist promoting? Well, 
eating raw eggs as a return to self-sufficiency and decoupling us from system dependence, a form of protest against the Great Reset. Love that. Inspiring men to be stronger, more active, and healthier. To look at a system that has engineered our weakness and reject that. Don't completely discard aesthetics. Be proud of how you act and look. That's a good thing. Our worldview should serve us. I say that a lot. A person out there who's less sure of themselves should be able to look at us, the alternative, the quote, conspiracy theorist, as they like to call us, and say, wow, those people really seem to have it together. During COVID, there were a lot of memes that flipped the script on the conspiracy-minded being paranoid and delusional. One box would show a family sitting down for dinner and say, conspiracy theorists, and the other would have a person in a mask, covered in Purell, wearing the face shield and the whole nine yards and say, rational thinker or something like that. You know they try to make us seem crazy and staring into the abyss and the darkness can take a toll on a person's mental and emotional health. But we should define our own archetype and embody it. And it should be one of strength, logic, and flourishing. And if you're actually taking control of your life and you're rejecting the processed foods they make for us, some of this kind of happens on its own. If you're eating organic fruits and vegetables and locally sourced grass-fed, grass-finished beef, as well as slonk and the raw eggs, where is there for you to go but up? So I do think if we're going to criticize the industrial system, we also have to decouple ourselves from it and not be victims of it. That's the reality. And there is a degree of marketing involved when we're fighting for the soul of a nation. <laughs> and all that said, I just think raw egg nationalist has an interesting way of doing some of those things. What is true resistance to globalism rather than nationalism? It's certainly a start, right? Who gave us the idea that it was a dirty word? The globalists? Hmm. Just food for thought. It's not the new direction of the show. It's not my new religion. I stay neutral, but really anyone who sees the Great Reset and Agenda 2030 objectives as the main thing we need to resist and navigate around is an ally to me. If we keep letting ourselves get caught up in, well, I'm this, and I like people to come from XYZ perspective, and I don't like that word or this word, we're just chiseling ourselves down into smaller and smaller compartmentalized groups, and that only serves the big machine. So I say we try to approach things much more broadly, look at the threads that unite us, and worry less about the ones that don't. I feel a bit bad that we ended on a somewhat awkward note regarding the abrasive tone that the new right likes to take, because I don't know if it serves the movement in the best way. I'm not sure mocking and berating is the best sales pitch. But I also think there are phases to any new emerging philosophy. And maybe this one is in an adolescent stage. But it's also not really fair to act as if raw egg nationalist is responsible for the actions of everyone who self-identifies within the same group either. It's not even the biggest deal, but I thought it should at least be brought up in a well-rounded conversation. 
That said, I thought he offered a ton of unique and interesting material. The first hour was great. We ended on the alpha gal thing. And I really screwed up my joke there, but alpha gal is a funny term to define a condition of being allergic to red meat when red meat is so often associated with manliness, the primal diet and all that. And considering raw egg nationalist branding, I find that ironic, though I can't stop saying alpha gale syndrome for some reason. But maybe gale is the new Karen. You don't want to be any of that stuff. <laughs> In the Plus Show, though, we also talked about advice for cultivating a symbiotic, efficient home garden using companion plants, the Russian dacha gardening system and how we might use it here, dairying and the Bronze Age step expansions, Uncle Ted Kaczynski, and a lot of other stuff. You know the deal. Sign up for Plus if you find it valuable. It's not hard to figure out. And you will get a lot more value out of the two-hour full interviews. I'm confident in that. And higher side news, as soon as I started rolling out video clips, I faced the wrath of the big machine. I'm banned from posting on YouTube for at least a week. My Instagram got some limits put on it. It's just the way it is. And that's why subscribing through the RSS and using the HiresideChats.com is so important if you want to keep the connection between us strong without having some corporate platform deciding for you. But I'm going to refrain from bitching about that too much because we already know. As for the meetup calendar, here we go. September 2nd, High Springs, Florida. September 14th, Los Angeles, California. September 16th, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. September 22nd, Alamosa, Colorado. September 30th, Columbia, Missouri. If you're curious about any of these, just go to HiresideMeetups.com. If you don't see an event near you, it's super easy to make one. Do it now before COVID 2.0 ramps up. I'm already seeing more masks and stores and more seeding of a new wave in the media, stupid as it is. Build a better network now. And with that, I'm going to call it in. Take care of you and yours. Be your best self. And I'll see you next time. I've done my part. Your move, processed food addicts, victims of engineered weakness and resistors of the tough love approach. Your fucking move. Sometimes when I get down, I eat a bunch of corporate junk. Processed stuff that makes you fat. Yeah, it's a weak and sickly people making industry. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Technology, and every now and then I try to quit and.